LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Ben Mandrell. Great to be on with you, and what a joy it is to be here today with Tim Keller. Yes, we're going to get right to it today. We don't want to. We don't waste any time. We okay. had a little bit of talk before it started, and we decided we needed to go ahead and hit record <laughs> because Tim was already getting ahead of himself. So we need to get this show on the road. Okay. Oh man, I'm glad to be here. By the way, I'm really <laughs> glad to be with you, especially when you start with so many compliments like that. I mean, how can I not want to be with guys like that? No, thank you very much for having me again. Well, um, the last time we were on together, it was almost a year ago. Uh, it was March of 2020. And that is really when we started to figure out uh, that, that COVID was going to be something that affected us for a, a long time. And we didn't know, right. we, we didn't know how long the immediate effects were going to be and then how far reaching the effects are becoming. The interesting thing to me is, now we're a year later and we're starting to see some, some light. We, we're starting to see, um, well, we don't know. Everybody is, is guessing now what things are going to be like in six right. months. Um, but we don't really know. And so uh, I, I think the conversation we had back then was really helpful for me. And I think helpful for a lot of pastors because you were comparing it to, uh, 9-11. And you were talking about how different things are uh, now versus then. So talk about, uh, just go ahead and uh, exegete some culture for us uh, now, what we've, what we've been through. Because for me, I, I said, you know, what we've been through for the last year. And you said, yes, but it's really 10 years. <laughs> and that's when I said, no, 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 we have to stop now. We have to hit record. Yeah. Yeah. A year ago is 10 years ago. I'm, what I would have said, I'm sure, pretty sure, among many other things, a, a year ago, is that with 9-11, the way we dealt with the tragedy, the death, there was a lot of, I mean, New York, you know, since was different than any other place. Um, the virus is different because every place is kind of the same. But we had a lot of death. I mean, we had, you know, several, like, several thousand people die. Uh, at least 3,000 or something like that. And almost, at least in Manhattan, almost everybody knew somebody who had died. That wasn't true the rest of the country. Uh, and also it was, uh, there was economic, I mean, people left just like they have now. They just got out of Dodge. Everybody's worried about something else, you know, an, a redo, of, you know, just a bomb going off somewhere else. And, and, but the way we dealt with it was we came together. We came together, we had multiple meetings. Uh, the, the churches were jammed, you know, with non-believers who just needed to be together. And the trouble with the COVID is that you can't do that. And that's the main thing that churches do to handle stuff like this. So what I would have said a year ago is this is really bad <laughs> because we actually can't do, the church is actually being handcuffed. I can I kind of understand why parts of the, of the country really pushed back about that and just said, we're just going to get together because God wants us to get together. But there was some problems. I think there's, it, it was still problematic because on the other hand, you don't want to put people at risk. You know, and, and so it, I, and I do think that has continued. That is, I do think it has been pretty, um, I don't think churches have, I don't see churches really having cracked a code during this time. So let me talk to you a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, uh, the two things that are, we wouldn't have seen coming. 
is you've probably heard this term that everybody says, what kind of recovery do we have economically? uh, Let's just start there. The 2008 economic recovery was L-shaped. It went down and it just took forever to come back. Uh, Then there are economic recoveries that are V-shaped that say, you know, um, uh, you know, they they bounce back pretty fast. But some people are now talking about a K-shaped economy because it is really weird. I I can just see this in New York because New York doesn't have much of a middle class. And I'm going to get to that in a second. You either are working class people who have to show up at work or you don't have a job. You can't work through screens. And then you have people who work through screens and they can stay home. The people who work through screens, not only have they kept their jobs, a lot of those companies have done very well and the stock market's gone like this. And so people who've got investments and are making making pretty good money and can work through screens are just doing fine economically. And even saying, you know what, our family, because we haven't spent so much time together, my teenager, my college students, they're all off every place and you know we're, we're close than they ever were. And generally speaking, there's a lot of folks that are having back what they used to talk about in World War II. The Brits used to talk about some people had good wars and some people had bad wars. And some people actually did well economically and in every other way during World War II, and other people did terribly, of course. We're just, so it's like people are talking about it's a, case, a K-shaped recovery. So some people are doing extremely well. Other people are doing terribly. Um, in New York City, for example, has lost like 250 to 300,000 jobs in the restaurant tourist industry. And I know who those people are. They're in a lot of our blue-collar churches. And, of course, a lot of, most of those blue-collar churches and working-class churches and poor churches have seen multiple deaths. And there's a plenty of the more white-collar churches here in New York City have seen no deaths at all to COVID. Because they're young, we usually, their parents live somewhere else. You know, they come to New York for the jobs. Right. And so their parents live elsewhere. So if they have grandparents or, grand, or parents dying of COVID, they're not here. And so that that isn't good. I mean, the, the K-shape recovery means I've got a, my, my urban planning son, the Christian who works for New York City, is always reading books on demographic trends because urban planners have to do it. And there's pretty much people are saying it's uh, the COVID is, is um, probably accelerating the waning of the middle class. That increasingly you're going to have people who've got investments and who are living off a lot of their investments and people who actually work for a living. And the people who work for a living will not be able to buy homes in the future. Many now, you know, you guys, Lifeway, you're, you're the first place you're seeing this is on the coasts, and that may seem like a long way away for you, but mm, I don't know. But where they can't buy homes and they can't put their kids through school, uh, they can't do what we would normally call a middle class job, even though a middle class lifestyle, even though they have middle class jobs, they might be teacher, you know, teachers, or they might be. And uh, do a lot of things that we would say, well, you should be able to live on that, even though maybe not that well. So I, I do think this erosion, and I, don't, I know it sounds like a progressive liberal, but the point is, the reality is there's going to be this economic inequality that's being accelerated. And that's going to have a big impact on the church. You might say, what should we do about it? I'll tell you right here in New York, basically, there needs to be a connection. Um, you guys are Southern Baptists. There needs to be a connection between the rich churches and the poor churches. The rich churches, I mean, it's just, look, the Bible's all about that. I mean, Paul's talking about it, but here's the famine-struck churches, and the churches that are doing well need to give to the famine-struck churches. It's simple. I mean, you really ought to be not, you know, putting on that new wing and doing all this stuff. There's lots of white-collar churches that are actually going to come out of this pretty well. 
and their giving's not going to go down. And they need to start saying, we've got to connect to to the uh, working class and poor churches in our urban area or somewhere, and we really have to help. So that's just one. That's just the economic. Maybe you want to ask another question. That's a pretty long answer. So maybe you want to direct me on some other things. No, I I think that, um, you know, we wanted to ask you how churches in New York are doing, but at the same time, you just, you, you told us that, but, you know, I have the luxury of getting to talk to, to pastors every day. And um, you've already pointed out something that um, I hadn't really done the math on before, which is uh, we see a lot of churches who are doing just fine. It, it, they, they, their giving hasn't dipped. Some, some have actually improved during the time. Um, And I am guessing that it's that divide that you just pointed out. Um, before you got on, Ben and I were talking about uh, a, a couple of things that are happening as well. You know, you talk about, um, you know, traditionally we would, and I, I, I really wish I, I could remember where this concept is, is from the author that I read that had it. But traditionally we look at a bell curve and what he was talking about is a well curve um, and not about health. This is not about health. He was okay. talking about that there are opposite ends of the spectrum on everything and where we used to have a middle, whether it be socioeconomic middle class, you know, the majority were in the middle. Um, now that's completely fallen out and it's a well and politically socioeconomically. That's true. That's true. Um, everything we've been kind of divided and, and, and it's almost like uh Almost everyone exists on one extreme or the other, whether it is politics or yeah. economics or anything. Can you, can you yeah. speak to that at all? Yeah, I, I can confirm. I'll quickly confirm two applications of it, and I'll, I'll, I, I will actually expound a little bit on the third. First of all, I actually, in a sense, just said that that if you're pretty poor, there are programs for you in New York City. You can get public housing. You can get there's stuff. Yeah. If you're really rich, no sweat. It is the people in the middle that are really just. They can't afford to put their kid. I mean, if the local public school is terrible, they 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 don't have options. Um, the local public school often is terrible because the people in the community actually can't invest in it. You know what happens in the more prosperous communities is the people in the community very often give to the public school and they, they donate the computers and all that stuff. Um, and so it's 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 a catch twenty two in a way that the people in the middle are falling lower and lower. That's economic. I just said that. Another way you could talk about that is politically. I heard that word, and it's true, that the extremes are very empowered, which gives you the, when you go online, you get the impression there isn't anything in the middle. And if anybody speaks up, and I'm kind of one of those people that people say, and what they do is, if, if it doesn't look like you're really with them or the other, the narrative is, there's only two options. There's us and the evil people. And anybody that shows up that doesn't quite fit the narrative is a big threat. So they have to go after you and it just, they just run you off the field unless you want to stay there and get bloody, you know, but basically the media gives you the impression. And I think to this great degree, it's true that the most, most, where most of the money is coming, the philanthropy, uh, big corporations are giving to very left-wing causes and a lot of wealthy people are giving to very right-wing causes. And as a result, uh, and of course they're, they're multiplying their news feeds and everything. So uh, yeah, politically, it's also true that people in the middle are kind of like they don't have any voices. They don't have any. They have no. They have no news 
they they have no news outlets. You know that they don't because nobody goes to news outlets that aren't being really uh, outraged all the time. Uh, and I mean, even the New York Times, I've read the New York Times for 32 years. It's way more progressive and left than it's ever been. Way, way more. But I've also always read the Wall Street Journal and it actually is, it doesn't go all, it, it's, they think of themselves, they, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal think of themselves as sort of center right, center left, but they're way more right and left than they were 30 years ago. I've been reading them every day. Now, here's the thing for churches though. And I don't know whether the, your brother was thinking this. Very small churches and very large churches, I think, are going to do better than the in-between churches. Okay, that, I think that this is worth, I don't know if I'm right here, but it's certainly worth you hearing this idea. I, I am very good friends with a, uh, uh, a lay minister who is the pastor of a church, a Baptist church in Ambleside, Cumbria, United Kingdom. It has probably 40 people that come at the most. It's got about 20, 25 members. It's been around for a long time. And he's a lay minister. He runs a, you know, he's, he's, he's run a, a local hotel and he, you know, he, uh, he's a great guy, wonderful man. And um, in a sense, during COVID, this is in Britain, of course, they actually are in touch with everybody. You know that. They can do that. They can call everybody up. Uh, they can occasionally get together, uh, you know, mass, you know, they can, they can do certain things. They can visit. Uh, they can, and therefore nobody's really falling between the cracks and they're praying for each other. They get on the phone, they do some zoom stuff and all that. And everybody in that community feels still very connected. On the other hand, the very big churches that have got terrific preachers, terrific preachers, great production values, people are just going there because they can give you the best show online. And what's happened is originally, as you know, most of most churches that were able to get online, like a lot of the working class churches couldn't get there. See, that's the other thing. Churches of one or two or 300 people, they don't have a lot of money. They have deaths. They're not very media savvy. They really, they're really hurting because they've never been able to move anything much online. But then there's a lot of medium sized churches that in the beginning said, oh, usually we have 200 people coming. But we're getting 600 people to watch Sunday morning. Now, what you don't know is whether each one of those people is actually four people at home watching and which which ones of them are actually in another state but they just used to go to your church or somebody told you about but we also know that the medium-sized churches those numbers have gone down over the year right most people say that the numbers at first people were tuning in and now they they're not so that idea is that the middle-sized churches the small churches give you high touch everybody knows everything everybody else but the big church and the middle-sized church doesn't do that's their that's what they do and you know they'll be fine. And the big church, the main glue is just the, the quality of the program, just so high quality. But then in the middle church is basic idea is, is what I call weak ties. All right. That is the idea that you don't know everybody in the middle-sized church perfectly, but you know all of them somewhat. And they're able to resource each other and you're able to have small, you might know everybody in your small group, but then the church is bigger and has more to offer. It has a good youth program. It has uh, maybe you know one good minister that actually connects everybody or a couple of ministers. That group is going to have to probably st- almost replant their churches, I think, when COVID's over. They don't really know who's with them anymore. And I think they'll be – the small, small churches will probably retain virtually everybody. And the big churches are going to be fine. 
And that medium group is going to have to really rethink it from the ground up. They're going to have to kind of wait to see who shows up. And that, again, we don't know how fast things will normalize. So I think they, they, they face the biggest. And so that in every one of those three areas, I'm agreeing with the well-shaped curve instead of the bell-shaped curve. Tim, so, can I ask you a question? You, because of the way God's given you such favor, you are a pastor of pastors. And there's a lot of church leaders that listen to this podcast. How have you encouraged pastors in this season? I know a lot of guys that are struggling. It's been hard on their hearts. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. What are you saying to guys who are looking to you for hope right now? I haven't. Well, um, what do I say? Well, first of all, have I done as much of that as I should have? No. And but now here's the thing. I've got this, as my wife says, you've got this industrial strength excuse. I've had a lot of people saying, can I talk to you? Can I get online? And I've, I've talked, I would say I've talked to a, quite a few, but because of my cancer uh, treatments, it, it, there's uh, especially last year when they were really severe, I'm actually planning on doing more of this encouragement guys in this coming year. I'm actually going to start to find, you know, an hour a week with this group of pastors and that I'm going to last year, I didn't do much of it. Honestly, when they when it's largely because I was half about 50% of the time I was really debilitated. I mean, not debilitated. My doctors say I've come through this way better than most people. Uh, not only has my, the cancer actually been shrinking, which is unusual for like almost an entire year. Uh, but also I compared to other people. I bore up pretty much under the, uh, under the, uh, uh, the chemo, but it was, it really did. Uh, yeah. it really did constrict me. I what, I, what, what I want to say is that <laughs> this is the book I've just recently wrote, uh, uh, you know, hope in times of fear, the basic idea behind the book, uh, that it, what it grew as I was writing it. Cause I actually wrote most of it after I found out I had cancer was that the cross resurrection is really the motif of the Bible that God doesn't go from strength to strength. He goes through weakness to strength, through experiences of weakness to strength. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you can find that on almost every page because God works ordinarily through weakness. That's why Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's so many places where he does that. He, he'll work through the rejected person. He'll work through, through um, you know, Joseph, who is sold into slavery, then put in a, a dungeon, and yet becomes prime minister of Egypt, and really wouldn't have been equipped to be prime minister of Egypt if he he was a spoiled brat until he went through those things, and he had to. Um, and the weakness we experience right now, you never know why God's doing it exactly. He's probably got a hundred million reasons for it, but the um, ordinarily it's through the weakness you you reorganize. You repent, uh, you deal with your own heart very often. I mean, ministers, we all do. We identify too much with our ministry. It becomes our identity. Uh, one of the big problems that I've been saying to pastors all year is that what's so debilitating about this year is nobody's getting any wins. I mean, nobody's patting on the back saying that was a great new program or, you know, man, Easter, we had the biggest crowd we've ever had. And there is no, no, Nobody's getting affirmed because there isn't anything to affirm. And what you have to do at times like that is say, well, where's your affirmation supposed to come from anyway? So uh, through this weakness, is your prayer life growing? I, I feel like in many cases that's not happening. Uh, I mean, I, I've had 
when cancer count came, I had to kind of really go into prayer in a way I've never done before to make it through the day. And it, guess what? If you really, if you spend twice as much time seeking the Lord's face, um, twice as much time looking for his presence, he actually is there. And uh, the reason why you haven't experienced that is because you haven't been desperate enough or you haven't been after it. So I would say, uh, look, I've, I, in some ways, I've got your problem on steroids, as it were. In fact, literally, I get steroids every two weeks, but let's not go there. Um, <laughs> literally, I've got the same problem you do on steroids. I've had to rethink, well, what, where is my affirmation? Where is my, what is my, my foundation? What's, how strong is my spiritual life? And this is a time for you to do that. So I would actually go through and say the death and resurrection idea um, is what you have to see right now. And if, if there's some ways in which your church is experiencing deaths, literally or figuratively, there's a resurrection on their side. You've got to seek God for it. Man, that's a really great, man, that's gold right there. No matter how many people you have on staff at your church, there's only so much you can accomplish in a day, right? Your church exists to serve your community. So the mission of your church and its staff is to reach as many people as you can. That's why productivity is essential for churches, as most of your church's success lies in its ability to lean into and leverage resources for optimum performance. And thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay is an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, and they have successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. That's why they're offering our listeners a free download of their resource, Church Leaders, Essential Strategies to Unleash Productivity. Let Belay help your church live its mission in your community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, that's B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash Lifeway for your free download. I know that with preaching, just in and of itself, having done it for 17 years, I just got so much energy out of a full room full of people. And, you know, you'd have that sermon every once in a while that seemed to kind of take fire. And you really felt like you were in the center of your calling. I, I talk to guys who just, if you have a passion for preaching in the pulpit, it's been especially challenging because speaking yes. to the camera is not the same. No, it's uh, like television. It's like being on television. Yeah. So I think what you said is absolutely true. I think uh, pastors have had to look into their hearts and ask about, okay, what is the motivation? Who am I apart from this job that I do? And those are hard questions. No, I agree with you totally. I think that, 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 that and usually it's these kinds of desert times uh, where you sometimes can get that kind of perspective and to say, I really don't have the spiritual chops to to meet this more demanding situation. That's what I mean by saying same thing can happen to you if you suddenly get bad news, you know, medically, or if you there's a lot of things like that that will come. So embrace this in a way and say what you know. So anyway, I think we've talked about that. That's good. You know, each time uh, each time we've had an interview with you, one of the things that I've always greatly appreciated about you is is your reading list and the wealth of knowledge that you've had coming from years upon years of, of reading great books. So are there any books that you went back to during this time? 
and um, and maybe share a couple of those, and 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 also maybe, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna read one or two books right now to to help come out of this, what is it? Well, spiritual classics. Now, by the way, I mean, you know you're a publisher, so am I allowed to talk about other books? Absolutely, we love books. We talk constantly. Yeah, yeah. Books. Um, the main books I've gone back to during this time are the spiritual classics. Uh, my guess is that the best books on leadership, like leading through the pandemic, or most of those books are going to come out later or I actually because things are changing so much I don't online you can find a lot of interesting stuff some of which seems like it makes the most sense but I don't think that I didn't read leadership books or frankly brand new books generally I mentioned one I went back to spiritual classics um and so I uh, I've reread especially John Owen uh who was a Puritan who uh get this for he had 11 children and he outlived every one of them, plus his first wife. And when he was, so death is something he knew a lot about. When he was dying, he wrote something called Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. And uh, if you're gonna find it online, there's a lot of different, there's some paraphrases of it, there's some abridgment. It's often usually called the Glory of Christ or Meditations and Discourses. And I I really, uh, that's that stuff has been, gold i mean i've read it before also i'm rereading his communion with god which is something i kind of skimmed years ago but it's really better than i remembered it so i went back to spiritual class and not just them i also um uh, there's a book by uh richard sibbs these are puritans i know it called a bruised reed based on what paul jesus says a bruised reed he will not break and all that so that's right. where i went back and what here's here's one one book that was um it's a new book. I really wish there were more authors, and maybe this is a, an exhortation to you, who went back to spiritual classics and didn't just abridge them or paraphrase them, but basically write, rewrite them in a mo- to, you know to modern audiences, heavily using two or three of the of the great resources, that, and but at the same time, so really heavily rooting themselves in the spiritual classics and yet being very contemporary at the same time. It feels to me like most contemporary spirituality books kind of ignore them or people just basically channel them by abridging them and paraphrasing them. So, now, the, And I'll give, give you a book that's an example is the Dane Ortland book. It's the, uh, what is it? Meek, no, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus, Gentle and Lowly. What he does is he takes two or three books on how the the... the Jesus Christ, the priestly Jesus Christ, but was before the Father. What is his heart toward us as sinners? And it's basically a book relentlessly saying he loves you in spite of your sin. But he he roots it in in two or three uh, really great classics that are really closed books to most people. And yet it's very contemporary and very biblical. And if you take a look at that, it's also evidently sold real well. Somebody told me, if you look at that, we need a lot more like that that are books that are really deeply rooted in, in ancient and past stuff, but at the same time is highly contemporary, very, very contemporary, not just a, a kind of a rewrite. So that's the only one I read during this time that was pretty helpful to me. Otherwise I just went back to spiritual classics. Uh, what's fascinating is, uh, okay. So during, 
I'm a big Valley of Vision guy. I, I found oh, yeah. it in yeah. uh, found it in seminary, and then sometime in the last year, I was like, "Well, somebody needs to make a podcast out of this. It, isn't this like all public domain?" And somebody, and but it, when I looked at it, it's no. It's the way it's compiled. It, a lot of it is public domain, but the way it's compiled is not. And some of them were edited and so forth. But the fascinating thing about that is. Um, they really cut, it really comes from about 56 different resources, yeah. uh, different books. And then, so you become a back to the sources guy, uh, and, and you can go back and look at some of those and they're so, okay. So good. Okay. Todd, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. I know the Valley Vision extremely well. And that is another example. That's a long time ago now, but that's another example. It's not just a rewrite. I mean, in other words, it's not just a paraphrase. No, it really heavily edited and rewritten. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a pretty good example of that. That's the reason why you can't just, um, it's not, it's not public to me. No, but, uh, for example, I was going to say, uh, a lot of John Owen stuff and Tom, oh, Thomas Brooks wrote a book called precious remedies against Satan's devices. It's a fascinating book. And one of the best books I know pastorally, but it's very old language and, but I believe that thing could also be uh, that plus three or four other books. If you're trying to base your entire book on only one, then it will end up being a kind of just paraphrase. Right. But what Valley Vision did and what Dane did too, if you look, Dane Ortland, uh, there's a there's there's one main, I think there's probably one book, it's, it's a Thomas Goodwin book. Uh, he was a Puritan. I think inspired the book. But basically he just uses lots and lots and lots of sources and that's what you have to do. And yet you're still working on a topic, trying to pull out the sources from a particular part of your a part of the church history that you think has a lot of insight for us today, but most people don't get it. Tim, one of the questions that we love to ask leaders on the podcast, uh, because it makes us all feel better about ourselves is about your leadership failures. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any stories of like, I can't believe I did that moment in your life as a leader that you could speak to, to help us maybe feel a little bit more. Well, I'll say something. Ourselves. I'll, yeah. I'll say something, um, general then, and I'll give you a specific example of it is uh, most ministers that get into leadership positions, especially the church is bigger. They're like, I'll put it this way. Last night I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of different people, their friends. It's actually a book club, but anyway. Um, one person is, a, these, most of them are Christians, but not all of them. Um, some are Jewish, Some one, one person's an atheist, agnostic. But uh, one person was, a, and I won't mention it, these names, because probably half of them you've heard of. Uh, one person was a doctor, a physician. One person was an artist. I mean, a visual artist, painter. One person was a lawyer. Um, three people were ministers. I was one of those. And I think that's it. So there was, there were six of us on the call. And I said, none of us were trained to be leaders. In other words, we didn't go into leadership. We didn't go and get our MBA and then say, what I want to do is I want to get out there and I want to lead. I want to be an executive. What happened was we were good at what we did and we got, we got um, elevated to our position of incompetence. We get, we, and, and I think that my biggest ministry failure was to not see that I'm really not trained to be a leader. And just because I'm a good preacher and my church gets big doesn't make me a leader. 
And just because you're a really great physician and somebody puts you in charge of a hospital doesn't make you a good hospital administrator at all. Um, now, the advantage, of course, is that, you know, if you're, if you're uh, you know, it's the same thing with an artist. The artist actually was in charge of an artist, an arts ministry. And everybody on the call was talking about how they were overconfident. They didn't realize how little they had, to, how much they had to learn about being a leader because they thought that if I'm good at my job and this company or this organization just does my job writ large, then I'm a fine leader. See, I'm a great artist. So of course I can lead an arts ministry, you know, organization. I'm a good preacher. So of course I can lead my, my God bless me. My church is big. Now, of course I can. And so we all went back and so we, all of us had these kind of big failures that really came from, I think, overconfidence, not realizing we're going to need a lot of coaching. If we're going to lead these bigger, and it may go, it might go for you, Ben. By the way, it, um, we're going to need a lot of coaching because it's a it's a very different thing. Just because you're good at your job doesn't mean you're good at leading an organization that does that job. And then, give me give you a quick example. Um, my biggest leadership failure was when I was sick and uh, with thyroid cancer, which you already said. Oh, you mean you had thyroid cancer too? Yeah. Except that when I had it, they immediately said, look, this is going to take you out for a few months, but there's absolutely no way you're not going to get cured. I mean, we, could, we have like a 90% chance of curing this. So it's not at all like pancreatic cancer. So at age 52, I was told you have thyroid cancer, you're going to have to be kind of stepping out for a while. And I spent like three months, the, the, the whole summer I didn't preach and I stepped out. Um, and my wife also was sick. So what I did was I basically, I hired an executive pastor who was great, great, but I hadn't hired that executive pastor for this kind of job uh, without going into too much details because I don't want you know anybody to feel like I'm talking them down years later. I mean, I, I chose an executive pastor that was perfect for me being fully engaged, but he really wasn't perfect for me not being fully engaged. And I, I, I'll just leave it at that. And you know what? I just didn't have the leadership chops to realize that that basically I changed his job description and didn't ask, is this guy qualified for this job description? I changed the job description and hadn't, hadn't thought that out. Um, and um, in, in hindsight, I, it, take, it took me five years to get things right with the staff after I came back after my five years to, because they had siloed, they didn't, they'd all decided nobody's really helping us. So we're just gonna have to do our own thing. And they and the different the different departments were actually uh, kind of a, somewhat at turf war with each other, and nobody was really uh, able to mediate between them. And I just took, took me at least four years to uh, get that straight. So it was a pretty big fail. And yet on the outside, I don't think most people noticed that the church continued to go okay. So God just protect. He saved me from my sins again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. Appreciate you speaking to that. I know a lot of guys will be interested to hear your response to that. Todd, you got one more question? You know, for me, when, uh, when I look at um, the, the last time you were on and I think about that conversation and how many um, pastors pulled me aside, that's, that's one of the ones from the last year uh, that, that pastors will pull me aside and say, Hey, I listen all the time, but that one was, was really beneficial to me for where we were during COVID. Um, is there anything that you want to share 
today, you know, moving out of hopefully moving out of this and, and at some point in the future, back into establishing a normal rhythm. Uh, what would you, let me, let me say one more thing that you said earlier, you had said, um, there hasn't been as much change as you thought there would be, um, coming through this, um, or people haven't adjusted as much as we thought they maybe neutralized, uh, the, the problem rather than creating something new or embracing something new. So what would you tell them coming out of this? Is I think right now it wouldn't be a bad idea at all to plan uh, to 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 uh, get your three or four scenarios. Everybody's throwing out scenarios. It could be a year from now. It'll be like this, 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 this. I actually think that the biggest advantage of leadership planning is not the plan that you come up with, but the process of planning and how it enriches you and gets you ready for the future. So, in other words, go through yeah. a planning process. And say, so for example, what if it's really true, as some people say, that work has been forever changed and white collar work was going to be largely done from home. And that's just how it's going to be. And I've, other people say, no, 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 it'll bounce back. And other people say it'll be in the middle. And yet, so what you need to do is you need to look at all these different scenarios of how this is, our life is going to get changed. Do the research. There isn't consensus, but there's a lot of really interesting um a lot of interesting scenarios out there about what's going to happen. Some are much more negative than others. Then, then say, okay, what, what kind of changes can we make to our ministry to respond to those and, and sketch them out. Uh, and the advantage, like I said, the advantage of that is to say, well, which plan is the right one? Well, don't, don't move too fast toward it because the, 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 the history will roll out what is going to happen. And it's the process of the planning. Even if you have a plan, the process of the planning is more valuable than the plan because the future will never be quite what you thought. And, but you'll be in a position to move much more quickly because you, you'll see, because you've studied this, you'll see the direction before other people do. Um, the other thing I would say is, my guess is there will be some kind of new mixture. So, for example, I noticed a church in um, in Britain, the, uh, St. Ebb's Church, UK. Uh, it's in Oxford. And they do, um, and of course, they're Anglican, but still, they do morning, they do daily prayer, daily worship. It's 20 minutes long. Somebody sings. It's, by the way, not all liturgical. They're, they're kind of low church Anglican. Somebody sings a song. There's a scripture read. There's a 10-minute exposition. There's a prayer for people and bang. And I'm thinking every day though, and I'm thinking, you know, that is not at all a bad idea because what you can do there is you could be reaching people who then the whole purpose is try to get them in the body into your church. But there's no doubt that the, the COVID pandemic has pushed far more people out into the, onto the online. There's everything's being done online and people are much more used to it. So a church that just shuts down and goes back to in person for everything probably is missing an opportunity. Right. I mean, there's a whole lot of folks out there, some of whom are alienated from the church, as you know, because of all the stuff that's happened this year politically. Right. And are not ready to come in, but they're they're ready to find out whether I whether I like this this message or whether I like is it would be a sample, an interesting sample. The other thing is, I do think you could do some evangelistic stuff online regularly where this is a whole lot easier for a non-christian 
to be a Christian friend to ask a non-Christian to watch something uh, and then talk about it than it is to get them bodily into a, into a place. And I actually, I say, here's the other thing I'll tell you. I think it's going to be different. I think there's going to be, not only is there going to be more difficulty getting people into non-believers into in-person evangelistic events, but there's more hostility to the church than there's ever been. And I really think that the, uh, it's not it's not the great evangelistic speaker in the event that's really going to carry evangelism. It is the one on one. It's 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 it like in the early church, because in the early church, it was dangerous to invite non-Christians to church. You know that you never knew whether somebody would just start to rat on you and then they come and take you away because there was a lot of Christians were very persecuted for like 300 years. And so how did the evangelism happen? How did, how did Christianity grow from 0% to 10% of the Roman Empire in basically, you know, 200 years? How did that happen? It happened through individuals talking to their friends and colleagues. That was it. 80% of the evangelism happened like that. I know you read the Acts and there's the, you know, there's the itinerant preacher going around and preaching. Oh, that's how it happened. Yeah, maybe right away in the beginning, but that's not how, that's not really how the early church grew. Uh, not over the next 200 years. And, and we're going to have to go back to that. And I do think online stuff could really help because it gives the Christian a little more in the way of resources for their non-Christian friends. So they don't feel like, oh, I've got to be the only one. But they know they can't pull them to church because they don't want to go to church. But on the other hand, what if you give them resources? Through? So I think some combination of a lot more online stuff. But at the same time, ultimately, you can't let people live indefinitely online they are not going to be changed by the gospel that way. They they are they have bodies and they've got to be bodily present with other people with bodies. So some obviously some kind of mixture, but just how much depends on the scenarios. I hope that helps a bit. Yeah, it's really great talking to you, Tim. So grateful. One last question I would have is just as our listeners who really love you are concerned for you, how can we be praying for you in this season? Well, if you want to be really specific, I mean, obviously, the, the prayer is please uh, give him more years by uh, eradicating or arresting the cancer. Um, the uh, real specifically, I'm on a lower dose of chemo because I have to go there because of the, uh, the just the effects on your body. Uh, and now the real prayer is, can this lower dose keep the uh, cancer at bay or shrink, continue to shrink it. If it does, that would be, that'd be wonderful. And again, it, it buys you a lot more time. If it doesn't, then you have to go try other things, which is just uh, time consuming and all that. So basically praying that the cancer would go away or be healed or, or be arrested. And especially now when I'm on a new lower dose chemotherapy, because the good thing about it is I actually have, I have far more good days and I can be a lot more productive if I could stay at this for a long time. Okay. Hope that helps. That certainly does. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I know, uh, you talked a little bit about it, but I want to make sure people understand that you do have uh, a book coming out that is hope in times of fear and that it was, it was born out of this particular yeah. season in your life. But I also think that it will speak really well to people, uh, especially coming uh, into and, and, and out of Easter as well, the Easter season, right. as well as 
this current season that we're in in our churches. So thank you so much for sharing sure. with us today. And guys, let me just be totally pragmatic. If you get it now and you're a minister, I can guarantee you getting some good ideas for your Easter sermons. <laughs> I, just, I mean, honestly, I guarantee you get something. So awesome. good deal. There we go. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us again today. And uh, for our listeners, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, uh, please, first of all, share it with a friend. Uh, And second of all, um, hop on over to uh, iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Thanks so much for listening.